Welcome to the third episode of Breaking Bread, sponsored by Growing Up Italian. I'm here with a dear friend of mine and former teacher, Richard Vittieri. Hey, Richard, what's up? How you doing? So, uh, you know, we're, we're here. This is the second time that we're filming this around, uh, you know, you have your new book that's just out. Why don't you tell the audience at Growing Up Italian a little bit about it? Sure. It's called Live Fast, Die Young, Leave a Good Looking Corpse. Um, a lot of people know the phrase. They don't realize that the phrase is from a movie called Knock on Any Door with Humphrey Bogart and John Derrick. And John Derrick is an Italian-American from the West Village who kills a cop. And on his way to the electric chair, he tells the prosecutor, Humphrey Bogart, live, young, uh, die, live fast, die young, leave a good-looking corpse. And I thought it was really interesting for a title for my memoirs of the 1970s. And what's interesting is we're in Williamsburg now, and um, I would say half the stories in the book, which are true stories, took place in Williamsburg but about 1973. Mm -hmm. So it's safe to say that Williamsburg has probably changed a lot since the last time that you were here or yeah, my, writing my, about it, I guess I should say. Yeah, my mother's family, uh, the Giulianos and uh, the Iannuzzi's, that, that was uh, her family, they had a, a house on Lama mm -hmm. Street and uh, Richardson, so right next to McCarran Park. Mm -hmm. So I would come and visit my relatives. Um, but then in early 80s i wrote a movie called vigilante and we went back to williamsburg and shot in mccarran park so when you see the film you see fred williamson chasing this uh actor <laughs> he's a friend of mine um and uh it's full of graffiti i mean mccarran park nobody went there it was just scary it was just uh and now i see people you know with strollers yeah and my mother told me in the, you know, I guess in the 40s it was, she could walk across McCarran Park at 2 or 3 in the morning and not think about it. That is, wow. Uh, definitely the times have 100% changed. Yes. But, uh, like, you know, so Richard here has pretty much done it all. Writer, actor, author, screenwriter, playwright. You've done it all pretty much. Don't what are you up to? Don't forget Wait. the three books of poetry. Yeah, and the three books, and poet, sorry. I started as a poet. Yeah. I started as a poet, and I realized it was going to be tough making a living. Um, <laughs> I went to Columbia for my master's in comparative English literature, and I remember sitting down one day telling my father, I love movies. Maybe I should try to write movies. Because he worked as an expediter mm -hmm. for Universal Pictures on 57th and 11th, 56th and 11th Avenue. So um, I would get movie posters. We would go to all the openings, believe it or not. And I realized how much I loved movies. So I wanted to write movies. But in between then, I was also writing plays when I was a young kid. If you don't mind me asking, like, uh, what was your dad's reaction when you told him you wanted to watch movies? Because I told my dad that, and my dad wasn't too happy. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you. Um, he wasn't happy. Yeah. And I'll never forget when Vigilante came out. I took the family to the theater. Uh, I called up the movie theater, told them I'm the writer, and they made a big deal because there was a premiere, and I, I really couldn't take everybody to the premiere. So I took them, and when we went home, he said to me, I, he said, what are you going to do now? You could quit. You, you, you proved yourself. I go, no, I'm going to keep writing. And he said, you're just like the Kennedy. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He said, they're never satisfied. They always want more. 
And I'm like, no, this is what I am. Yeah. You know? Like, you know, that's a that's a good analogy, though, because as a writer, my like my, like self, I'm definitely like, you know, I love what I do, but I always want to do more. Always, always, always. And you're never satisfied. You know, yeah. I'm much older than you and I'm still writing new stuff. You had just asked me what I'm working on now. Yeah. Well, I've had a pretty good reaction so far to Live Fast, so I'm actually writing part two. Really? Yeah, it's called Live Fast, Die Young, Leave a Good Looking Corpse, part two. And it's a memoir of the 70s and 80s. Okay. Because I got really lucky. Vigilante was a big success. And um, 80s cult classic? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Bam yeah. called it uh, one of the best indies of the, of the 1980s. So I got an offer to write a movie in Paris. And I lived the summer 87 in Paris. And not only wrote for one Parisian producer, I wind up being flown to Saint-Tropez, Nice, Toulon, and living on the French Riviera, and wrote for the producer, director, Juice Jackin, who made Emmanuel. That was a yeah. big movie. You know, it was softcore porn, but it was huge. Yeah. And so I lived in Paris for about three months writing films. Wow. That's, uh, you know, just to relate to the audience, and there's a lot of people that come in the office here, growing up Italian, who want to be what you are, who want to accomplish what you've accomplished. And, you know... Seeing that you're here, you're in the flesh, and that you've done, uh, you know, everything from writing to poetry to plays. And, uh, you know, it's awesome that it's, uh, I guess, that we can say that it's a reality. Yeah, it, it, I've been kind of special because other than Paris, another city I got hired to write a movie in is Rome. Mm -hmm. um, out of the blue, a, a, a producer called me up and said, Vigil, we love Vigilante. We want to fly you to Rome mm -hmm. and have you write a film uh, for the director, Giacomo Battiato. And I said, wow. And he said, when could you leave? We're going to send you a first-class class ticket. And I had a plan to go to L.A. for meetings. Mm -hmm. So I was living a fun life, flying to L.A., taking meetings, staying there for a little bit, flying from L.A. to Rome, and, you know, with the Writers Guild rules, they have to fly you business or first class. So I was making trips that summer back and forth to Rome. And I spent this summer in Rome. And um, it was really exciting for me because I've never been there. And um, what was really great was my mom was still alive. So she got to visit me with my cousin and um, That's nice. girlfriend. And it was, uh, it was really cool. To, um, but... Uh, the international aspect of it, I think, um, is something exciting. Anybody could go to Hollywood. Yeah, you know? that's but, true. <laughs> Did you meet any nice uh, Italian actresses? Yeah, um, <laughs> I, I actually, going back to Paris, which was a few years later, uh, it's a story I don't want to ruin because it's in the new book, but I okay. did, real quickly, I saw an actress in a movie here and said, I would love to meet someone like that if I went to Paris. Would you believe my first night I met her? Wow. Yes. Wow. So, and that, I won't say anything more, <laughs> but, um, it's, you know, I, I think in this business, you got to live fast, yeah. don't die young, yeah, but right. you got to be open to any possibilities because they, they could come like this, you know, the phone rings in those days, you didn't have cell phones. Yeah. You know, if you missed the call, you missed the call. And, um, can you be, I remember when I said, could you be in Paris in two weeks? Wow. I had a passport, but I didn't have a visa. So I had to run and get a visa. And when I was on that plane to Paris, man, it was like. This is pretty amazing. My father was like, they're flying you to Paris. <laughs> I said, yeah, see, vigilante. 
It doesn't end. More stuff happens. That is the dream life. Um, I remember not too long ago when I published my book, uh, my dad was terrified for me to travel internationally. So he w- I, I was living at like home at the time and he threatened to kill me like the whole thing if I go. So I lied. And now you're going to find out, dad. But <laughs> I lied and I said that my publisher sent me to go you know, put my book in bookstores there. And I actually Googled bookstores and all this stuff. But it, it just made me think of that. Like, again, like you're living the real life story. Thanks. You know, when, yeah. when my novel came out, The Third Miracle, I was the opposite of you. I didn't go to the foreign yeah. countries for the novel. I, I don't know why, because um, The Third Miracle was actually uh, Book of the Month in Poland, mm-hmm. and oh, I wow. still haven't been there. Yeah. Well, the movie was made, uh, directed by Nishka Holland, and starred Ed Harris. Yeah. So. Um, great actor. Yeah, and he was great to work with. And we shot it in Toronto, even though it was set in Queens. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't go to Spain, where the book was doing well. And it wound up the movie was very successful in Catholic countries. So the book wound up being a book club in, uh, not Greece, but in Spain. What would you say, since we talked about a bunch of your different works, uh, what would you say you're the most proud of or is your favorite? And, you know, and those could be two different things, actually. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question, and it's really difficult to answer. Um, it's really if hard. you're throwing everything together, so I'm talking about poetry, books, everything that that, that you've done. Well, I, you know, I always wonder, you know, as artists, we wonder, what, what are we going to be remembered for? You know, like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to think about it when you're writing stuff. Things that I like a lot, I have a novel called uh, Writer's Afterlife, mm-hmm. which I love, and it's about a writer who dies young, mm-hmm. 40, and he goes to the Writer's Afterlife, and he finds out that he's not famous enough. <laughs> to hang out with all the famous writers. And I really like that. I don't know where I came up with that idea. Um, I, I love that idea. As a writer, I absolutely love that idea. Oh, have you read it? No, no. I have it. It's on my bookshelf. I haven't oh, read good. it yet. All right. Yeah, I haven't read it yet. Because um, I want writers and artists to read it to see that we all go through this. Yeah. You know, we all go through. And um, he, get, he has the opportunity to go back to life, you know, after death for one week to see if he could change his destiny. To be famous. Because I think fame is what a lot of us are interested in, always in Western civilization. Yeah, I'm really proud of um, my screenplay, Caravaggio. Mm-hmm. Been working on it for a long time, and it's now in the works. I can't say too much. I don't want to uh, you know, say too much of what isn't for sure yet. But it's going out there, and I've been working on it for a long time. For you young writers or emerging writers, um, it takes a long time, some projects. I mean, yeah. that script's been floating around for couple of decades wow russell crowe wanted to make it really yeah met him real briefly he wanted to play caravaggio it didn't work out um i I, a lot of stars i could throw names at you read the script and loved it but i just could never get the right producer the right this the right that right now i think it's in the right hands so we'll see that's amazing and i can't wait to uh hear I, i guess what's coming next yeah, that would be, that's one of the big things. Um, I just wrote a play about Joe McCarthy. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if younger people know who he was. Um, but um, I just finished uh, that play. And I'm trying to get that going. And I wrote a play called Zagwada, which is about a, because uh, I grew up in Maspeth. Mm-hmm. And over the years, um, people um, have been arrested who were um, uh, capos or guards 
in the concentration camps. Which is shocking to me because I'm from Maspeth and, like, you know, it's just crazy to think, like, Nazis in Maspeth, like, you know, those two really don't go together. Well, they were in the Polish section. Yeah. They spoke Polish or German. And so I, just two years ago, someone was arrested. Wow. And I said, I got to write this play. I've been thinking about it for 20 years. So I wrote the play and it's now published, just got published before the pandemic. And, um, there's going to be a really big reading in February International, and we're waiting to see if there's going to be a production in Los Angeles. I'll know soon. And um, for play or film, uh, stage play. Wow, yeah, nice. I like stage plays. I've been very fortunate because I've turned my work into movies. I wrote a play called The Marriage Fool about me and my father when he was dying. I said I wanted to capture his language, how he spoke to me, mm -hmm. um, in a play. So I did a little one act that Farley Granger played my father in. And then every night after this show, Farley would say, this is too short, you gotta make it a full length play. So I did, it got produced, and then eventually, believe it or not, I sold it to CBS. Wow. And I got Walter Matthau, and Carol Burnett, and John Stamos. And John played me, <laughs> and uh, my father- That's a compliment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Having dinner with John was a kick, because he yeah. never ate anything. You know, these really? guys are really skinny. Like that, he he weighed this much. I can't imagine that. I mean, oh, having dinner with those I, guys, I, I, I is can't not, imagine it personally. Yeah, I can't imagine it. Well, I'll tell you about George Clooney too, because I worked for him. But um, so my father was played by Walter Matthau, and it, we shot in Toronto, and it's it's now out there. Um, mm -hmm. It was the highest rated CBS TV movie ever, and then somebody in England decided, I guess, got the rights to release it as a film, but they call it Love After Death. Mm -hmm. Not my favorite title. So um, that was something also that was based on my published stage play, The Marriage Fool. I wrote a play called How to Go Out on a Date in Queens, and it was made into a movie with Jason Alexander. And uh, Ron, Ron, Ron Perlman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, I never met Ron on the set, and I was having dinner with him at Sardi's maybe three, four years ago. With Dan Laurier, who's a good friend. And I said, Ron, we never met. You're in my movie. Ah, I said, I have a date in Queens. I wanted to meet you. He said, I had so much fun beating up Jason Alexander because he played a Russian mob guy. <laughs> and he beats up the bookie played by Jason Alexander. So uh, it's fun when you go to a party, you go to dinner, and you meet somebody. Like, You're in my film. I wrote that. I could imagine. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of fun. And he was a good guy. And um, so I got lucky. You know, I, I my stuff has been turned into movies. Yeah. Who would you say, since you just threw a ton of names out there, who would you say uh, you love working with the most? Actors. Wow. Um, I have to tell you, the stars I've worked with are always easygoing. That's great. I mean, Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett was nervous. I, I mean, she asked me to come up to her suite to work on a, a scene. Mm -hmm. And I think she was kind of nervous because she had to play a woman from Queens. And mm -hmm. she said... Could you say that I'm originally from Oklahoma, which I think is where she's from? I said, sure, we could put that in the script. So I wrote that in the script. She was a sweetheart. Walter called me up one day before I met him. And he, the phone rings. I answer, and he goes, it's Matt Dow. So I said, really? He goes, yeah. I want to change Frankfurter to hot dog or a hot dog to Frankfurt. I can't remember. Frankfurt. I haven't heard that in a long yeah. time. And because it was in the script. Yeah. And he said, this is funnier. I said, Walter, you know what's funnier. Let's change it. And he says, I'll fax you the change. So I got a fax a couple of minutes later. So he was really good. John was, John Stamos was really good. Ed Harris is really pro, really great guy. Um, 
I can't think of anyone that I worked with that wasn't Robert Forster, who just passed away. Yes, yes. I, I was going to ask you about that next, actually, because uh, he starred in your yeah. in what what made you right. Yeah, that what made you who you are. Yep, and he was great to work with. Great guy to work with. It's such a shame I was shocked. He hadn't worked after Vigilante in a couple of movies. He hadn't worked for twenty years. Mm-hmm. And I would go over to his house for these spaghetti parties when I was in L.A. on Sundays. Spaghetti parties? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was half Italian. No, but what do you mean, like, spaghetti parties? Like, they would actually cook spaghetti? Oh, everybody, yeah, they made like, spaghetti. I don't know if that was code word for some Hollywood thing. <laughs> no, you, no, you, no, you, no, You never know. No, no. Dan Luria had spaghetti yeah. parties, too. Yeah. No, guys would come over, come over Sunday and they make spaghetti. It's oh, okay. cheap. You make a good sauce. And we'd hang around. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know Robert was half Italian. He was wow. Half Scottish yeah, that's and half Italian. Shocking to me. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you wind up a lot of people are half Italian. Yeah. I <laughs> and um, so uh, Robert didn't work for years. And then after he did Tarantino's Jackie Brown, mm-hmm. which I think Tarantino was a big fan. I think I was told that. A vigilante. Wow. But that's why he cast Robert. That's a huge compliment. Yeah. That's, that's a why, huge compliment. Yeah, because Bill Lustig, who directed it, was you know him and him and Tarantino were pretty much the same kind of mindset creatively, uh, creatively, and um, Robert, I said, Rob, you want to do a play now? I got a play. He goes, No, I got to catch up all the movies I didn't get a chance to make. So you could say that you technically influenced him because his breakout film was Reservoir Dogs. Oh yeah, yeah. So you, you know, obviously your film was you like for that, and if he's a fan of your film, you know, it's safe to say that you influenced him. Yeah, I think my director Bill Lustig was onto something. Wow. You know, he, he knew, he came to me about Vigilante and he said, I want to do Death Wish. You know Death Wish, do you remember? Yes. Yeah, with Charlie Brown. Yes. White collar Death Wish. He says, I want to do blue collar Death, uh, Death Wish. And we're going to call it, we, we kind of screwed around with the title for a while. Mm-hmm. So he, he saw a play of mine called Rockway Boulevard at the Actors Studio. Mm-hmm. And he said, you're my writer. I want you to write this. I'm going to hire you. So I was like, I never wrote a screenplay before. I had been hired. No, that's not true. A couple of years earlier, um, I was a security guard. And really? I, I, oh, I hated it. <laughs> and I, here I am with a master's, right? And but I wanted to get a job that I hated, hated, so that I forced myself to get a job writing. That's actually a really good point. Well, let me tell you That's something. That's a really, really good point. I was sitting alone in my apartment one night, and I, I said it out loud to myself. I said, I gotta get a job I hate, so that I can make a living as a writer. So you hustle more. Yeah. yeah. And I got this job as security guard. And I figured, oh, I hated it. But two perks. I got to be Paul Newman and Robert Redford and Joanne Woodward's bodyguard one night. Really? Yes. And I was a big fan of Paul Newman. Yeah, because you know, yeah, the, the, uh, the, the hustler. For those of you who don't know, Richard here t- teaches at Queens College. Uh, he was my screenwriting teacher. And, uh, you know, basically started my own writing career, which I'm forever thankful to you for. Uh, but, uh, yeah, no, he screened The Hustler many, many times. Yeah, and so here I am seeing Paul Newman, you know, face-to-face. Yeah, I'm his bodyguard. Joanne Woodward, who I loved, and Robert Redford. I got to tell you, I only had a few minutes alone with him because we were alone. And I got to tell you, he was the coolest guy. Really? Oh, he was great. Here I am in the elevator, and we're going to take the elevator up. It was the Waldo Pepper movie mm-hmm. premiere that he started. in. He had jeans on, leather jacket. And he gets in the elevator with me, and he says, where are we going? I said, i got to take you upstairs. He said, oh, there's going to be a crowd of people. And he said, look at my hand. I'm sweating. I hate this stuff. I could tell you. I remember exactly what he said. We get up there, and he goes, here it goes. The elevator opens, and all these people, lights going off. And he was like, 
to me, the coolest guy. Wow. Coolest guy. Couple years later, I got into the actor's studio, and I'm there. I am with Paul Newman, and I tried to. I brought it up, but he didn't remember me. And guess what? Joanne Woodward came years later. Came to see my play Gangster Apparel, mm-hmm. and I said, "Miss Woodward, I, I was, you know, your bodyguard." And she said, "I don't remember." <laughs> so I gotta ask you, because yeah. uh, I know that I re- remember in. Um, Screenwriting class, you mentioned you almost wrote for The Sopranos. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I I like I know you brought it up. Did you happen to see the Many Saints of Newark yet? No, I've been reading all the reviews. Yeah. What do you think? Just going into it, you haven't seen it. Almost everyone has. I just want to hear your opinion because you almost did write for the show. Well, um, you know the idea of of, of a prequel. You know. Well, can I stuff. tell you about how that happened? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. I fly to L.A. and my my agent. Uh, Mars gives me a pilot, and it was the pilot. Mm-hmm. So I watched the pilot. I, go, oh. All right. I wasn't crazy about it. But I go to the meeting, right off, the, I get off the plane, I got jet lag, I go to the meeting, and I tell the producer at HBO, I could write this stuff in my sleep. Not a good thing to tell people. <laughs> so I didn't get the gig. But I don't know if I told you this story. Years later, um, people were saying to me, Oh, you know, I'm an Italian-American and, you know, the Sopranos, and they were upset with it. So I wrote a piece in the Times. No, I'm not with the mob. And they published it. And it was, I asked my students at Queens College, Mm -hmm. could you name one of the five Nobel Prize winners in literature who are Italian? They couldn't name one. You can name at least one. Not right now. (laughs) Just off the top of my head, I'm I'm also put on the spot with the camera. I don't know, but fair enough. Pirandello. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there's like and Montanelli. There's yeah. like four more. Wow. Yeah. It's so, but I said you know they know a lot of mob guy names. Yes. Yeah. So, David Chase read the piece. <laughs> so I'm at Mandicati's, a restaurant in Long Island City, with a good friend of mine, Sonny Grasso, the French Connection. He passed away last year. And um, I said, okay, I'm with Sonny and his mm-hmm. cousin. Now, and David Chase was sitting there. Wow. So I think I should go over and say hello because I got backup. Yeah, <laughs> I got right. Sonny. And Sonny knew him. So I went over to shake his hand. And he didn't shake my hand. Yeah. So he was upset with the, with the article. So what I didn't realize was then I go to Beverly Hills and I am having dinner with, I'm not dropping names here, but I'm having a private dinner with Tony Danza. Mm-hmm. All right. Just like two or three people. And Tony says, oh, I read what David Chase said about you in the Times. I said, no, no, don't tell me. I never read the piece. He said, yeah, yeah, the, he answered your piece. So make a long story short, at the Writers Guild party, um, uh, uh, David had made a movie about a guitar player, uh-huh. Not Fade Away, maybe, is the title. That sounds really familiar. Yeah. I think it was Not Fade Away. And but, I said, yeah. David, man, there's some wonderful stuff in here. So we got to talk, and it's fine. Yeah. You know, but... Um, yeah, I, I, listen, I watched The Sopranos like everybody else. Mm-hmm. And I got to be friendly with people on that show. And I know people on that show still. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I think you've interviewed Raymond Abruzzo. Yes, yeah. Ray Abruzzo, great guy. Yes. Great guy. He is coming on next, actually. Oh, great. Yeah, great. he is coming on next. Uh, he, he was actually supposed to talk with me via Zoom tonight, and he was teasing me, saying, oh, you unbooted me for rich. <laughs> <laughs> well, he once stole a date from me, so. Really, yeah. really? Yeah, I'm not going to talk. Oh, okay. 
But uh, Vinny Pastore yes. is, is a good buddy, and he did my short film, The Kids Menu. Okay, yes, he, you you screened that in class. Yes, I yeah. did. I showed yeah, yeah, yeah. He played a pizza owner, a guy in a yes. pizza place, um, who will not like have a kids menu. <laughs> you know, uh, he's an Italian American. He's he's gonna hold his ground. So um, yeah, I, I got to know a lot of guys on there, and and still friendly. Some I wish I had gotten to meet. Haven't met them yet. And Edie Falco, I knew. Before. Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, I heard that she's a great person, like oh, she's just the one, nicest, sweetest person. Actress. Yeah, brilliant actress before the surprise. Yeah. yeah, I remember seeing her in an Israel Harvard's play, mm-hmm. and I went up to Israel and said, "Where did you find this actress? Why isn't she famous?" He goes, "You know the story. Yeah, I don't care how much talent you have; it takes a long time, if ever. You know that same person, Bill Pullman, was doing a reading of mine, a director, and I said to the director, "Why isn't this guy a star?" And he said, you know the drill. Yes. This is New York. This is L.A. It's hard. And then look a bill. So if you hang in there enough, things will happen. They never happen the way you expect them to, but they happen. So as a writer, like, you know, uh, you've written screenplays. I'm, I'm beating a dead horse. You've written books. What do you think, like, the idea, like, you're taking something iconic, like The Sopranos, 20 years later. Right. Like, you know, you're going back to them, something that I thought was lightning in a bottle. David Chase had a huge influence on me, uh, like, you know, just in my own career. What would you say is, like, the dangers of going back and making a prequel? They obviously can't make a sequel. So, like, what would you say? You know, uh, when I heard he was doing it, I said, that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a great idea because you have a built-in audience. And when he was going to Newark, Mm -hmm. I thought that was a great idea. Mm -hmm. The Italian-Americans, African-Americans together. Yes, Um, big thing. yeah, Yeah, I remember that. Uh, those days so I thought that boy is this going to be powerful that's my only impression of it mm-hmm. so far because um, I haven't seen it okay. but I thought it was a great concept um, for him to do that I thought uh, what's his name was uh, brilliant uh, the guy who played Dicky Montesanti was oh, yeah, yeah. brilliant really brilliant yeah, he was he was absolutely brilliant. Uh, I, w- I will get to see the movie because I get all the the DVDs and the streaming sent to me because I got to vote. Mm-hmm. But let me tell you a quick Soprano story. Yeah, right before Sopranos it. took off, I was with Sonny, mm-hmm. Sonny Grasso. Sonny was a you know really successful producer, and I had this story about an Italian American family. Well, one of the sons is a mobster, and one of them is a cop. Oh, I, I think I think I remember you saying this too. Or Ray was in something like that. Yeah, but yeah, this, yeah, this was yeah. something that I had okay. developed with Sonny. So Sonny said, we're getting on a plane, and we're flying out to Fox. So he flew me out there, mm-hmm. and we went to Fox to pitch it. And the woman we pitched it to loved it. This is pre-Sopranos. Pre-Sopranos. Now, I don't think I could have written just focusing on the mob side, because Sonny was a well-respected, well, you know, he won awards as a cop. Mm-hmm. And he knew the both sides, French Connection. I mean, you know the movie. But I know he would have pushed, stopped me from, but maybe not stopped me, probably would have said, let's stay right down the line. But the woman producer loved it, but she went to the boss. And the boss said, I don't want to do a mom story. Really? We fly back to New York. As we land, we hear that we got... Two weeks later, this guy is fired. And I think Fox picked up uh, David Chase worked for Fox. Mm-hmm. So he went to HBO, and look what happened. With wow. Fox. And that guy got fired. Wow. But we were close, because I said, we got to do another Godfather. When I was a kid, mm-hmm. I was working unloading trucks at UPS with my good buddy. 
And uh, and actually, my other good buddy wasn't working there. Said so he brought us a book called The Godfather. So I have never had that experience where I was reading a book with other guys and we would just read a chapter a day and then talk about the chapter and that. Wow. So a book and that club. was the Godfather. And I remember saying at a dinner table at Mandacati's, I think we could do a series where people will wait each week for an episode. And if it's about the mob some way, we'll get them. I want to yeah. re- replicate the Godfather. Now you're making me think of something 20 years now. Yeah. But that was the truth. Wow. I mean, could you imagine? I mean, I don't think we would have done anything like The Sopranos because The Sopranos had its own special feel. And Galdafini really makes that show. I personally love, like, the psychological aspect of it. Drew, like, me in the most. Obviously, I, 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 I love the whole mob theme, but, you know, just that he's in therapy, all the stuff that's going on. Mental health plays a huge role now. There's, like, a whole new generation of kids. Uh, well, I shouldn't say kids, but people in, in their mid-20s who were... Sopranos fans, so it's a really uh, interesting take, you know, to look back on all this. Since and you it, did play a part, technically. Yeah, and, and uh, it took place in Jersey. Yeah, that too. That yeah, too. You, you know the whole thing. He was always told never shoot the skyline. Yeah. Yeah, uh, Timmy Van Patten told me that. I can't shoot the skyline. If you could, looking back on it, uh, would you say that, th- that there's any projects that you passed on that you wish that you didn't, or if you feel comfortable answering that question? Oh, yeah, yeah, no. There were... And I can't remember what they are now, but there were two movies I said no to, right? And they were made. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, I was really busy on another project, and the other one, I just didn't like the material. Okay. But that happens. Yeah, yeah. of course. I mean, they weren't huge successes, but they got made, yeah. which was nice. Um, but no, I think probably if I had... I'm not sure if I would have been right for writing for David Chase or anybody, mm-hmm. you know... I worked for CBS. I worked for Danny Aiello. Mm-hmm. And Danny was a good friend, and Danny was an actor, and I love writing for actors. Danny hired me. You know, he... he wow. Oh, yeah, that's why I'm, I'm working on this possibility of doing a one-man talk about Danny Aiello, mm-hmm. uh, the playwright Israel Harvitz, and um, Sonny Grasso, because I knew all three of them. Mm-hmm. They were mentors, and they, each one changed my life. Danny came to see a play of mine called The Classic, Mm-hmm. And he brought with him the lady. Oh, who was um, who was Mary Tyler Moore's girlfriend? Girlfriend, Rhoda. Who played Rhoda? Italian. She was Italian American. Mm. Okay, uh, yeah. she just passed away two years ago. Well, they came to the play and laughed hysterically. And Danny came up to me after the show. He said, "You're writing for me for CBS." Wow. Yeah, but my first thing was. Early. <laughs> I'm a playwright. I know TV writing, and I was right. <laughs> but I get a, my agent gets a call from CBS because of Danny. We want to hire Viteri. We're going to give him nine week contract. He starts as a staff writer, and then we'll see if we renew it. And they renewed it, and I stayed with the show for a year. It, it lasted a year. You just mentioned something that a lot of people ask me almost all the time. Uh, I'm on agented if like that's a word but i know the people use it uh so you know i did everything without an agent would you say that it's important to get an agent to not have one in 2021 does it not matter like you know i i get asked that question i don't know how to answer it because i'm brand new in the industry you know you're like a veteran so what do you think well think about it the more people making money for with you with mm-hmm. you it's better Mm-hmm. An agent makes money with you. Mm-hmm. Managers make money with you. 
lawyers make money. True. So they're yeah. looking out to make you money so they can make money. So logically, yeah. Mm-hmm. But in my day, there were less writers. Mm-hmm. You know, I had William Morris as an agent. I had the top attorney uh, attorney firm as my manager. And wow. they fought. She would say he should take this. They would say no. Or she would say, I don't want him to have it. They would say yes. Mm-hmm. And um, when there was money involved, you know, it, it's worth it. So, yes, today it's different because half the novels published are self-published, mm-hmm. right? True. Small presses, my last two books, this, uh, Live Fast, all small press. Um, people write, but they don't read as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, streaming has changed movie making. Um, you know, studios being in the Writers Guild, and I can say this guy was I was elected to council for two years. The inside track was studios are making like four dramas a year. Dramas mean dramas, not Marvel comic movies or this or that. So the indie world doesn't really exist anymore. You can't make a movie. How are you going to get anyone to see it? Yeah. How are you going to advertise it? So. To have someone representing you, whether as a manager, your material, I mean, certainly helps. But the world has changed, and we're in that kind of time where it's forming. So nothing is definitive. It may take more years before anyone decides. CIA, uh, CAA and ICM just merged. Mm-hmm. So think about that. Um, the industry is getting smaller. Even though there's more stuff being made, who sees it all? It's impossible. How would you say is the best way to go about getting an agent? Well, the way I got mine that changed my life was a producer took me to dinner and my agent walked in the door. Right place, right time. Just as my as the producer said, you need someone young, someone, a woman, Mary Maher. She's with Gers. And just as she said that, Mary walked in the I swear to God. Wow. So like the Greeks say, luck is the residue of design. Yeah. I went to that restaurant. It was called Columbus. And I think I'm, that would take a whole book. The story's there. I got jobs just being there. But um, she took me to the restaurant because she was free that night. I had other plans, but had to change them. Had a great time with her. And I went, and it's not like Mary said, hey, you could... I'm going to sign you. She totally ignored me. I had to, in those days, call. The The assistant kept answering, laughing. I told her you called. I eventually wrote her a letter. It was no email. A letter. And I said, she was a pretty woman. I don't want to date you. I want an agent. Here's my script. And she called me like two days later. She said, oh, my God, let me take you out for a drink. I want to talk to you. And she signed me. Wow. Yeah, and then we went from Gersh to Liam Morris. And you've had the same agent ever since? Or? I had five or six okay. agents then. Yeah, okay. Because when you go to William Morris, and I was writing TV and film and novels, I had oh, three one agents for each. in New York and three in L.A. Wow. Yeah, there's a whole story with Mary. She passed away young. She, she had problems. The New York Times did a whole story on it. And um, right now, I haven't been happy with anybody. So I'm doing a lot of the stuff on my own. So you you pretty much have been based in... New York, your your whole life. Yeah, I lived in L.A. when I wrote for, um, I got hired. Someone saw a play of mine again. 
I played One Shot, One Kill about the training of a Marine sniper, and I got asked to write for a series on ABC in L.A. So I had to move to L.A. Once again, my agent said, you got to be in L.A. in two weeks. They, get, they, they were offering you this, blah, blah, blah. And you just up and moved. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I gave my uh, girlfriend a box and put my clothes in it and said, if I call you in two weeks to mail it, here's the money, take it to UPS. Because I did not go with anything. Yeah. Because I said it, I could be gone in two weeks. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Yeah, and so I got a box of UPS. And wow. I went back the same way. I didn't get a suitcase. I just sent a UPS. That's, uh, that's kind of an exciting way to live. I'm like a creature of like habit, so I can't ever picture myself doing that. But wanting to be in your industry, I guess I'm going to have to do that, no? Well, you, you um, yeah, I was talking about this with someone writing, because I'm writing part two, about going to Paris. When someone says, could you be in Paris in two weeks? You know, listen, you're married, you have kids, you have a job, you can't go to Paris. Yeah, of course. And you can't say, well, when am I coming home? I didn't want to come home. You know, yeah. eventually after an entire summer, they flew me to Saint-Tropez, Nice, and I was uh, down in uh, at Saint-Tropez for about two weeks. Um, eventually, I wanted to get home, mm -hmm. you know, but it was an exciting thing, and I was getting paid, and I was working, and I didn't have a really great agent. Um, he just handled my deal for me, mm -hmm. you know. But agent or no agent, what you really need to do is be, you got to do everything. You're an entrepreneur. Advocate for yourself. Yes. Whatever the words they use now is you're an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. You're it's a business. A lot of artists are really good artists, but they don't know how to you know, we used to use the word schmooze. Yeah. But you know, you gotta go to events. Schmooze. I like people. that. Yeah. yeah. You gotta go to events. You gotta meet people. You gotta say, This is who I am. You know, I, I do it a lot, but listen, my most successful playwright friends like Israel Harvard did Harvard's produced all over the world. He was always doing it. It's a constant thing. So you, you got to put on that Italian charm is like what you're saying. Being charming <laughs> and, at least in, and at least decent looking <laughs> and well-groomed helps a lot. Yeah, I like, could imagine. I mean, so, yeah, I think about it. I got hired a lot because I look like that. You know what I mean? Like I mean, Slash. Like Slash. <laughs> and that was the way to look. That was actually Clockwork Arms. What was, yes. Yeah, well, I like figured with the yeah. cane and that movie uh, yeah, was I huge. I then. love that. Alex and the yeah. Jews, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you, I mean, unless you're brilliant, like whatever you put down on paper, people are going to run to. Unless when, you know, like my friend used to say, does Spielberg come over for dinner? <laughs> so if your family has those connections, that's great. If not, it could take you a lifetime yeah. to make them. So the whole thing with A Clockwork Orange, so you went for that yeah. look because it was popular then or that's what people were looking for? I was totally into the whole idea of violence being something creative. Yeah, yeah, well, that was huge. It at that point, it was yeah. the first time, no, that really violence made the big screen in like that remember, kind of way. Yeah, I went yeah. to St. John's for my BA, and I remember writing an essay and giving it to my my professor, and she was like, "I don't understand this generation." Now I would say violence is bad. Yeah, you yeah, because well, I'm older, but I wasn't into violence. But I, sex, drugs, I, and rock I know and roll what you mean. was what I was into, and also um, the first story in there is called Hot Dog Beach. Uh, 1973, the Rockefeller law happened, which mm. possession of drugs went from a misdemeanor to a felony. And everybody had drugs on them. I was going to say, how did everybody not go to jail? <laughs> uh, I stopped doing any kind of drugs that weekend. Wow. Yeah, well, a lot of people went to jail and they were in there for 30 years. Yeah. And eventually, I think it was a couple of years ago, they got rid of the law. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was a life sentence. So, you know, possession 
was maybe, I don't know, we, we had pills. I was into pills. So if you had a bag of pills, you go to jail. It became from a misdemeanor to a felony. What would you say was like, uh, talk to me about a party in the in the 70s. I'm like a 70s guy. Tell me the havoc that was going on at like a 70s party. Well, one thing is you never went into the club. You hung outside. Yeah, I could imagine, yeah. so. Yeah, you, went, you hung outside and, you know, talking publicly, but... It was very cheap to get second holes and two holes. Mm -hmm. So you would connect with, we were like, the guys from Greenpoint mm -hmm. always had the women. I was always down here because my cousin was down <laughs> here. And um, it was it was like getting, you know, you got high, yeah. you know. Um, I think a lot of the guys, it was just recreational, mm -hmm. and I think that word does make sense. Yeah, It's like how serious people are about pot. I can't smoke pot. I never smoked a cigarette, right? But it was um, it was being cool and listening to music. Yeah. It was, you know, I guess now it's rap music. Yeah. But in those days, it was, I remember I went to Fillmore East and saw Cream. See, rap music, totally not my thing. That's why I asked you all those questions, because I'm fascinated by it. Like, you know, I would love to go, you know, and listen to the, you know, I guess you can say 70s music in its heyday. Oh, I, I Led Zeppelin. I, yeah. was, I was a high school kid. I was doing my homework, and Scott Muni came on the radio station, I forgot the name of it. And he goes, here's a new band from England, Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. Yeah, I mean, I was totally into Eric Clapton. Yeah. I was into Cream. Well, I was how really, could you not be? Yeah, Exactly. He's Eric Clapton. And that's what we did, you know. And, and, and uh, we had just merged. We had just left the 60s where it was like, and I remember when I went to Columbia, the women would like wearing black and, you know, they weren't into their looks. And I took this one girl to Williamsburg. Mm -hmm. And I said, look at how the girls look here. And she goes, oh my God, they look so, they're beautiful. I go, yeah, look at the dress. <laughs> so I was in the 70s where looking good and taking a bath was the difference of the 60s where no one took a bath. Wow. Yeah, it was really big deal. Shag haircuts, yeah. halted tops. Uh, I can't say on radio the, the shoes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was like, you know, I wore boots. I had cowboy boots. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even think of wearing them now. But I walked all over Paris in my cowboy boots. Cowboy boots hurt <laughs> yes. really, really badly. Well, yeah. you, but you looked great in them. Yeah. And I had, a, I had a switchblade in my boot. Really? Yeah. Oh, so you were a badass. You no, had that... I, uh... I just, I just <laughs> had it because the guys I hung out with were tough. Yeah. But I wasn't tough. You know, we were looking for a good time. Yeah. And, you know, I was looking to get into Columbia, and I got into Columbia. And then it changed. Once I got my master's, it got real serious because I had to get an apartment mm -hmm. and I had to get a job. Would you say that, because I know a lot of people are making that kind of analogy now, uh, that the city's heading back towards the 70s, like, you know, as far as crime goes and all that stuff, because you lived you live through it, so you would know. Yeah, the, the 70s were a lot of drugs around, but it wasn't, it was dirty. Mm -hmm. The 80s got bad because of crack. Okay. And I remember when the first time I saw a crack in Washington Square... I was acting in a play, and one of the NYU students who wrote it said, that's crack, man. And it got really bad, and then it got bad in the 90s. So Vigilante came out in 83. Mm -hmm. So when you see the movie, we shot in Williamsburg, look at the streets. Yeah. Now, you couldn't have, it doesn't look anything like that. It's, it's like, so will it go back the way? I don't think so. There's been so much money poured into the city. you got to remember, the city went broke in the 70s. And Ford said, you know, screw New York. We can't, we're not giving you any money. And I think now 
if you're anywhere in the world, and this is, I could be wrong, you want to live in New York or you want to put your yeah. money in New York. So I don't think New York City, even with the pandemic, I've been going in Manhattan a lot. I've been on the subway. Um, it's In fact, sun, Sunday, Sunday, yeah, Sunday I was all over Central Park. It was packed with people, tourists and families. That was one thing I never saw in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Families. That makes sense. They started coming in the new century. Now families are there. So I don't think it'll go back to the 70s. I think they got to do something about crime, but we don't want to talk about that. But the crime was so bad that when I wrote Vigilante, it was like a, the, uh, what's the word, uh, the Greek word? Catharsis yeah. for me, because I just couldn't, I had to get it out of my system. So to, to wrap up the yeah. third episode of Breaking Bread, uh, is there anything that you'd like to tell the audience growing up Italian? Yeah, I think um, uh, there's things about growing up Italian that Italians don't even realize they're doing because they're Italian. <laughs> um, you know, I, I got a grant from the Russo brothers to make a documentary on Yes, Italian. yes. Uh, where are we now, the Italian-American today? And you could you could go right to the, the National uh, NAFA yeah. Yeah, Foundation. NIAF, yeah. NIAF. You can get the, the documentaries for free. It's up there now. We won a bunch of film festivals and stuff. And what I discovered about Italian-Americans is, you know, my question was, have Italian-Americans become so Americanized that they've been assimilated? Or are they still holding on to what it means to be an Italian-American? And I got kind of contrasting, you know, remarks. Mm -hmm. When I asked young immigrants what they thought of Italian-Americans, they said, who are they? Because to them, Italian-Americans... With these other white people. Yeah, yeah, that's... You know, and yeah. I said, they go, they're other Americans. Yeah. So they will become what Italian-Americans have become. They'll hold on to some things, which is good. I mean, one thing I realized when I had to describe myself once at an Italian-American conference, you know, I'm trying to remember how I did it. I said, I am a male artist first, mm -hmm. New Yorker, Mm -hmm. Italian American Catholic. Some would say that New Yorkers are nationality sometimes. Yes, yeah, I think yeah, so. Because is. no matter where I go in the world, people say to me, "You're from New York." Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't say you're from Des Moines. They don't say you're yeah. from Dallas. I'm from New York, and I was born in Manhattan. And it's a way we speak. It's a way, we and it might be disappearing. I think it's getting limited. People, yeah, you know, Italian American that have a spirit of being Italian-American, mm -hmm. which is the language, your body, yeah. how you hold yourself, what you think about. But it's also ingrained in being Catholic, I think. Yeah. Um, I think it's also ingrained in um, the family mm -hmm. because we're still people that are close. Family ties are important. Mm -hmm. doesn't mean other people don't have that, other ethnic groups, but to us it's always been important. And I think when you look at the history of Italy, the city-states... It's important from mm -hmm. where you're from. Um, but when I do go to Italy, mm -hmm. you know, and I see people and they look like relatives, I realize I'm not Italian. I'm an Italian-American. Yeah, yeah. You know, because there's a lot of American things I do, which is I like to get things done. Yeah. Actually, Giacomo, Giacomo Battiato said that to me when I was writing the movie for him. He said, you are a combination of Italian and American. Italian, you have the spirit, the poetry. Yeah. The American is, you're practical. You get things yeah. done. And that is the Anglo-Saxon effect that has had yeah. on the Italian-American who's come to America. We're not afraid to work. 
final question. Yes. Since you, you, you know, you produced and wrote a documentary sponsored by the Russo brothers, Italian Americans, where they are today, saucer gravy. What do you call it? Oh man! Every time I order it, I, I like I I'm I'm like <laughs> schizophrenic. <laughs> I say gravy, and they look at me. I go sauce. <laughs> but you know, I'm old enough to remember that going to a restaurant ordering pasta didn't make any sense because we had macaroni. Yeah, that's what. Yeah, I had See, macaroni that, on Sunday and Wednesdays. That's completely foreign to me because my family never said macaroni. They never said gravy. They well, never said younger, macaroni. But my father yeah. would say. To my mother, did you make the macaronis? Yeah, th- that's what my mom's side would um, say, but oh. they're very Italian-American. My dad's side is straight from Italy. So when I went to a restaurant and they said, oh, they have great pasta here. I go, pasta? You mean macaroni? And I went back to tell my father. I said, you know what we're eating is really <laughs> cool now. He said, they call it pasta? Said, yeah. <laughs> But it's macaroni. I go, I know. Yeah. So to answer your question, yeah. yeah, I would say gravy. But it's really hard to get anybody. When I say it now, they all look at me like, what is he talking about? That's a really mixed response like that I get. Like, you know, I, I like know that everyone eats it with a dead horse, saucer gravy, the signs right over there. But, uh, like, you know, I'm always curious because, you know, you're not really of my generation. So, like, you know, I'm always curious to get a point of view from someone else. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's a good question. Yeah. This was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Live fast, die young. What do you think, Rocco? Yeah. We talk too long.